We start a series around sexuality. It's going to be a mixed bag. There's going to be some of us, maybe particularly some of the older folk amongst us who are going, for about sex, do we really have to talk about it? For others of whom are in this meeting going, goodness gracious, I'm so glad we finally get you. And so I want to call us to be gracious. Hopefully we all win in that. Um, uh, why would we do this series? Let me start with the big why. And today, really, in a sense, I want to set up the series uh, as well. So here's the reality. Our world has been massively changing. It is changing rapidly. The world is changing very fast. In fact, the rate of change, religion, and countless especially in the of sexuality. And so, yes, we have to talk about this. There have been five massive shifts in the sexual landscape. I'm not making moral statements about good or bad. I just want to point out what's clearly happened in our society as we start. Five massive shifts in the sexual landscape. The first one we're going to see is that sex has become disconnected from childbearing. Remember, I'm not making moral statements here. I just want to put to you the world in which we live and how this has changed since the 1960s. Sex disconnected from childbearing. In 1960, oral contraceptives were introduced to the world. The pill, uh, otherwise known as. right. In other words, for most of world history, it was nearly impossible to experience the pleasure, pleasure of sex without massive Risk to responsibility as well. But, but when, the, when the pull came about, these two things became disconnected. Sorry, kids, you're going to get used to a lot in church. Okay, everybody just take a deep breath. This is coming a lot. This is what's going to happen. Most of history were in trouble, and now suddenly they've become uncoupled. This uh, disconnected from childbearing is a massive shift. It's happened in the lifetime of many in this room. The second thing I want to speak to, and some will be longer than others, this will be a longer one, sex has become disconnected from marriage. Before the generation of people alive today, for the vast majority of all people, regardless of faith, for most of history, generally speaking, sex was connected to marriage. Now, sex is separated from long commitment. And there's a few implications in society. I'm going to speak to just two of them. Science has helped us understand this by understanding something of the roles that are played by hormones. The chemical responses when we're... particular two hormones, oxytocin, two hormones. Scientists learned first oxytocin... Uh, of it in the, in the role of childbirth that's released when a mother nurses her baby and it stimulates the instinct of caring and nurturing. It's why it's been called the attachment hormone. And surprise, surprise, scientists discovered that oxytocin is also released during sex, especially but not exclusively in women. And consequently, the desire to attach when we have sex is not just an emotion. It's actually a, it's part of our physiology. It's part of our chemistry as human beings. The main neurological or chemical response uh, when it comes to sex in men is vasopressin, which is structurally similar to oxytocin, and it has a similar emotional effect. Scientists believe that it stimulates bonding. Vasopressin has been dubbed the monogamy molecule. 
And because sex has become uncoupled from commitment, and yet physiologically, not just emotionally, I'm not even going, I'm just physiologically, chemically, our bodies are wired for this. It creates anxiety. Philosophy professor Anne Maloney from the U.S. says this. It's no coincidence that the top two prescribed drugs at our state university's health center are antidepressants and the birth control pill. Now, I'm not oversimplifying and saying it's just that. Please don't, get, don't hear what I'm not saying. But we'd, buy, we'd be naive to not see the connection. The second uh, implication of this is in South Africa, fatherlessness. In 2018, 2018, the census was conducted and the Western Cape came out as the highest number of fathers still present in homes of children, 56%. The Eastern Cape, where I come from, is the lowest, 25%, which means between 50% and 75% children growing up in South Africa are growing up without fathers present. There is a crisis of fatherlessness, and it's in part due to sex being disconnected from commitment and marriage. Number three, sex has become disconnected from male and female relationships. This is still very new. In South Africa, same-sex marriages were legalized only in 2006. In fact, in 2008, Barack Obama was at that stage part or leading and running his campaign for election in the Democratic Party of America, the more liberal side of their politics, he ran his campaign against same-sex marriages only in 2008. Why am I saying that? I just want us to know how recent all of this is and how fast it's all been changing. I'm not going to talk about it much now because on Wednesday night we're going to camp there for a long time. So I'll keep moving. Number four. Sex has become disconnected from love, relationship, and emotional connection. Now, this is not true for all, but certainly for many, and it is increasingly becoming the trend. For those of us who are older today, I'm going to speak about hookup culture. When I was at school, if I said to one of my mates, come, let's hook up, we're going to grab cup of coffee, it meant something very different than if I was to say to somebody, now we're going to hook up, right? Hook up is a sexual encounter. The rules of hookup culture are clear. You are not to become emotionally attached. There is no relationship. There is no commitment. There is no exclusivity. It is exclusively sex. And you are supposed to be able to walk away from the experience as if it did not even happen. And this is what we are teaching our young people. We are teaching people to disassociate their bodies sexually from who they are as whole persons. Researcher Donna Freitas, interviewing hundreds of students in the States, And admittedly, I've been reading a lot of books from the States, and a lot of the stats come from the States, but you know as well as I do that often what starts there trickles down here as well. This is what she says. Hookup culture creates a drastic divide between physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. She says, Amid the seemingly endless partying on America's college campuses lies a thick layer of melancholy, insecurity, isolation that no one can seem to shake. College students have perfected an air of bravado about hookup culture, through a great ma- though a great many of them privately wish 
For a world of romance and dating, students learn from the media, their friends, and even their parents that it's not sensible to have a long-term relationship in college. College is a special time in your life. They'll never get a chance to learn so much, meet so many people, and have so much fun again. Relationships restrict freedom. They require more care, upkeep, and time than anyone can afford to give during this exciting period of adolescence, between adolescence and adulthood. They add pressure to an already heavily pressured, overscheduled lives of today's students, who, according to this ethos, should be focusing on their classes and their job prospects and the opportunity to party as wildly as they can manage. They can always settle down later because they have been taught to believe that hookup culture is normal, that everybody is enjoying it, and that there is something wrong with them if they don't enjoy it too. What could be better than sex without strings? Yet, in fact, many of them, both men and women, are not enjoying it, enjoying it at all. While hookup sex is supposed to come with no strings attached, it nonetheless creates an enormous amount of stress and drama among participants. One writer, in fact, said... When sex is reduced to an exchange of pleasures, the other person's personality becomes a burden. We, we dehumanize each other. Increasingly, we defer marriage for career, for travel, etc., but we still want to enjoy sex, just without the commitments. And so an interview, Rolling Stone magazine, a student named, named Naomi about hookup culture, she said this, she said, people assume that there are two very distinct elements in the relationship, one emotional and one sexual, and they pretend that there are clean lines between them. I'm just trying to describe something that's happening in our culture, the shift that's happening. Closer to home in South Africa, maybe you've heard of the blesser and blessy phenomenon. A blesser, made, made prominent in the South African media since 2016. This form of transactional sex is where older rich men or blessers entice younger women to be blessies with money and expensive gifts in exchange for a sexual relationship or sexual favors. Here's the thing. None of these are new, and people have been doing all of these for a long time. Here's what's new. What's new is that more and more these shifts are pitched as moral progress and liberation from oppression. And the people that still hold contrary views are labeled as archaic and evil. The last one is that sex has been disconnected from people. Sex has been disconnected from people. Obviously, this is in the example of depersonalized sex. It happens in pornography where a viewer, where a viewer disconnects with the, the subject's body from his or her personhood. Where do we go to next from porn? Reading up a bit about this, very interesting, trying to Google this in a skillful way, by the way, for a preaching series. Really got to navigate some stuff here. Um, but some say that the future of this is actually sex robots with sex dolls. Futurists predict that, um, that within 10 years, sex robots will become more popular than porn. In fact, the first sex doll brothel um, or robot sex robot brothel has already opened in Barcelona, Spain. Forbes.com article, sex with humans could soon be a thing of the past. The, the German magazine Spiegel wrote in an article about the report, The Future of Sex by British mathematician and physicist, what he's got to do with sex, I'm not too sure, Ian Pearson, who draws a future in which robotic brothels and strip clubs with computer-controlled dancers are the norm. 
Today, so many of our friendships happen over computers rather than face-to-face. And what many are saying is this is creating an epidemic of loneliness. But not only is it doing that, it's changing the nature of relationships in our lives. And so Japan has been one of the countries that's been hardest hit where one-third of people under the age of 30 have never been on a date in their lives where one quarter of men say they no longer are romantically interested in women because they're going for virtual girlfriends or porn habits. Basically, the stats are telling us that young people are having less sex than ever before. And before you go, yay, the answer is very sad, no. And the answer is because of porn and because no one has got the social skills to flirt anymore. (laughs) <laughs> this is a canary in the coal mine, guys. This is a, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not, remember, I'm not making moral statements here. I'm simply just trying to artic, articulate something of what's happening all around us in our lives. And if we're really honest, there is so much pain and hurt and dysfunction and guilt and shame and regret and anger and fear and insecurity and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because of sex and sexuality when it's gone wrong. So many in our society say, what's the big deal? It's just sex. It's not like anybody gets hurt from it. But you try show me a human being who hasn't been hurt from sex in some way. Divorce, adultery, sex addiction, attachments, body image, insecurity. Sex touches on all of our lives. And our world is streaming us a message with what it should be about. And we've got to slow down to make sure that we navigate this moment in the right way. We've uncoupled sex from family. We've uncoupled sex from relationships and even from people. At best to do this is naive. And I believe to my core that human beings are worse for it. If, you, if you're struggling in any way with your sexuality, let me just start by saying this. You are not alone. And if you're searching for answers, you are not alone. But let me also just say this at the start. It's not that the church has always got this right. Let me be clear on this. I'm not trying to stand up here and say that Christianity has always been on the right side of sexuality. I'm not going to pretend that we haven't got any egg on our faces when it comes to sexuality. In fact, if I'm honest with you, I'm deeply embarrassed about some of the things that Christians have done in the name of Jesus when it comes to sexuality and the way we've treated other people. And so, as we embark on this series, we embark with a measure of humility, but at the same time, it's humility with courage and clarity because we need a biblical sexual ethic while all of this landscape is changing. And so please can you hear this tension in, in, in our hearts as we do this. Today's first message, let's begin. That was just the introduction. Uh, the story that we are living in. The story that you are living in. That's what I want to talk to today. I want to start by looking at the story that you're living in. Every single human being, every one of us here today, your life is located in a story that you believe about who you are and what it means to be a human being. Your sexual practices, your sexuality, all located worldview of who God is. Does God exist? Does he not? Who am I as a human being? How sh- who are other people as human beings? How do I relate to them? All of our lives have, have been, are given a context that we believe that informs who 
actually live out how our humanity, what it means to be human, as well as our sexuality. As Christ followers, we believe that all of us are broken as human beings. Every single one of us. And that Jesus was God who became flesh and dwelt amongst us, among other things, to show again what it means to be fully human and what life looks like nourishing. We can look to Him to learn what it means. And so today, I don't want to look so much at right and wrong as much as I want to look at a theology of what it means. the world you are living that you are believing that informs your practices before we go before we go is this thing wrong human being what is the meaning of life and uh, how does that inform how we treat other people and ourselves we're going through to theology anthropology but 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 really to to an understanding of what does it mean to be human and what are human relationships all about do you believe, what, what do you believe it means to be human? Think about it for a second. What are other, how do we relate to them? What about your own body? Am I more than matter and mass, molecules? Forgive my crudeness, meat. Or do we have a soul? Does my physical body matter? Does God care about what I do with it? These are the things I want to open our Bibles to 19. And what we're going to do, we're going to read this, we're going to read it slowly. And then I'm going to articulate two different stories that we live in. We're going to look at Matthew 19. Look, Jesus is sitting out of. We're going to look at Matthew 19 for the story that Jesus is teaching out of, for what he believes it means to be a human being and what human flourishing looks like. And we'll read it together slowly. And then I want to articulate two stories, a secular story and a Christian story. And let's look at them in contrast to one another. Matthew 19, verse 1 to 6. (coughs) Sorry. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. And large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. First thing to know about healings when it comes to Jesus is healings were not just a magic trick that Jesus used to do to get people to come to him. When Jesus was healing people, he was giving a visible demonstration of what he came to do on earth. He was restoring human beings. He, when Jesus healed someone here, he was pointing prophetically to ultimately what Christ was going to do through his resurrection in the future that you and I as a Christ follower would receive a perfect restored resurrection body. And in healing, he's almost bringing that moment from the future here as a, as a foretaste, not, not the real deal because all, all healings were going to ultimately end in death, uh, as a foretaste to show us what Christ came to do. He's coming to restore creation and humanity. And some of the Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? 
Now notice, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a moral question. Should he be allowed to? Is this right or is this wrong? And Jesus goes past morality to theology. He says this, verse 4, Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. Interesting, when Jesus got a, a question like this, where does he go to? Jesus goes to the scriptures, the authority of the Bible. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Let me read that again. God made them male and female. It explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Jesus said, do you not know from the beginning God made them male and female? Jesus recognizes that there's more going on there than just morality. It's more than just right or wrong. He takes them back to Genesis where, where, where we see in the beginning who we are as human beings and what it means to be human. He goes back to, in a sense, an anthropology, an understanding of what it means to be human. You see, for Jesus, our sexual practices stem from our understanding of what, human, what a human being being is fundamentally about and how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And so I said to you, there's two predominant stories we see at work in our culture. Let's articulate firstly the secular story. There's 10 points I'm going to look at and then 10 there just for planning purposes in your mental maps that you're creating as you go. There'll be a test conducted afterwards. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Number one, human beings are highly evolved animals. We're looking at the secular story. Human beings are highly evolved animals. We are here because of luck, and we are here because of chance. In other words, to be really crude, a human being is, in other, word, in other words, just an ape with time and chance on our side. Second one, human being, human nature, sorry, human nature, it is what it is. It's, we're just humans, that's what it is. There's no meaning, let's not, go, let's not get carried away. There's no purpose uh, to the human body other than that which evolution has given us in order to further the species. Number three, male and female is just a physical difference in plumbing, right? Just, you know what I mean. Number four, Gender is a social construct. Gender is imaginary. And it's in fact often said that it has been developed by the patriarchy to oppress women. Number five, sex is just play for grown-ups. It's about biological, uh, our biological need for release, which is why, interesting, Nancy Piercy points this out in her book, Love Thy Body. She says this, sex education courses typically focus solely on, on the physical dimension, on body parts, on health risks, on avoiding pregnancy, on the mechanics of sex. They do not teach us how to form and maintain a relationship because if sex is just playful grown-ups and it's not about all of the other things that we're going to see, then the most important thing is just the potential dangers. And, and I'm not saying it's not important to teach kids about these things, but if this is all we teach kids, you can see how this shapes our worldview. Number six, that love is just a feeling of happiness you get from being with another person. There is nothing permanent about love. 
It is a feeling or a desire, and therefore love is fleeting. Marriage is a social construct. Marriage is a social construct. It's not natural. When you look at nature, you don't see marriage in nature. In fact, marriage is oftentimes oppressive because it's getting in the way of our ability to explore with freedom all the things that could possibly make us happy. Monogamy is not natural. If, if, if it works for you and if it makes you happy, then you do monogamy. But if it stops making you happy, just end it and get a divorce because ultimately, you must do what makes you feel good. Authority in the Bible. Well, the Bible's got some good ideas, but it's anti-sex and it's outdated. In fact, it's oppressive like anything that puts limits on your ability to express your freedom, to express yourself. And anything that gets in the way of your desire to be happy. Authority is not found outside of yourself, not in a relationship to God or relationship to other people or in, in like in marriage, but authority in this worldview is found within yourself. You are your only authority and nothing should limit you from being able to live out your truth in life. Number nine, the body. The body is nothing but matter. And as such, it doesn't really matter at all. The body doesn't mean anything. It's just a tool to use as you please. Speaking about the body, a Catholic writer and former lesbian, Melinda Selmus, says this. You can do anything with it that you'd like, says Selmus. She gives some uh, examples, but uh, it, it, uh, just I don't want to even mention them. It's just a sort of wet machine. A tool that you can use to exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. It's just mass. It's just molecules. There's no authority. Do with it what you please. Lastly, meaning and purpose. There's no real meaning in life. Sorry, just to stop you. Robin, you're doing an amazing job. There's more slides in this message than any I've ever done. So just relax. Meaning and purpose. There is no real meaning in life. There's no creator, there's no design, and therefore no purpose. So the best you can do is create your own meaning and your own identity and convince others to affirm your discovered self. We don't need God, who's pretty much a dead weight slowing us down from progress. It's the story that we hear in our modern culture all the time. We hear it in Hollywood, we hear it in Disney, we hear it in Netflix, we, get, we catch it in sitcoms, in music videos, in song lyrics, in magazine covers, in, even in legislation these days. Lauren and I started watching a series, and, I, and I've watched, we watched just the pilot. I'm not, ad, I'm not encouraging everybody to watch it. I don't even know if it's good or not. There's a series called The Good Life about a, a doctor with autism. I think, I think that's the way the story goes. Why, why am I telling you this? Because the first, the first pilot episode starts with two people engaged in a hookup culture as two doctors are on call in the on-call room hiding away. And they're very clear. This is just sex. It's nothing else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is everywhere. It's so much so that it's easy to assume that it's true. As Piercy says, the most powerful worldviews are the ones we absorb without knowing it, just watching the good life. They're the ideas that nobody talks about, the assumptions we pick up almost by osmosis. 
But I want to say today that it is just a story. It is just a narrative that we construct interpreting the data points in the world to create a story that we embrace in a particular way. The question we need to ask ourselves, though, is, is this working? And admittedly, it's very new. And so it's hard to tell. But certainly it's not working for a whole lot of people. And the signs are all there that this is destructive in our society. Before I look at the alternate, I want to just point us to next week, as soon as the motorbikes come racing past, where Don will be with us. And Don will be speaking about our spiritual formation and how our practices within our sexuality form us as human beings into a particular type of person and who we're becoming as human beings. I want to ask the question, though, now, is there more... Is there another story? Is there a more true story? Is there a story that makes better sense of our humanity and what it means to be a human being, of the human experience? I want to put to you there is, and it's the story that Christ is speaking out of in Matthew 19. Ten things. Human beings are made in the image of God. What separates us as human beings from animals is more than IQ and finger dexterity. We are created in the image of a God who made us. To be human is to nation. It's also incidentally why as a Christian, although you might hold a different view than somebody else, you, although you might even hold a different faith than another person, you are never able to treat them as less than a human being. Because regardless of if they agree with you or regardless of if they believe the same as you, they carry, every human being carries an intrinsic worth and dignity because they're made in the image of God. And so we need to learn how to disagree with people without dehumanizing people, which is something that's missing in our society. But yet Christianity gives us that ability to differ without dehumanizing because we can still disagree and communicate worth and dignity on an individual, and we must. The second thing in terms of human nature the way that we are as human beings is good, comma, but every one of us is bent. Every one of our sexualities has been distorted because all of us, although created in the image of God, have been shaped and marred by the fall. Every single one of us has got an orientation that is out of whack with who we were meant to be. We've all been, in a sense, deformed by the fall. And so none of us can say, I am who God created me to be. All of us have been, in a sense, shaped and misformed because of the fall. Good, but yet marred. Male and female in sex. Your maleness and your femaleness is from God and it is good. In fact, it is blessed in the Bible. But I want to recognize too that there is a tremendous pain and struggle for people who feel that their psychology and their physiology do not align. And this is a very real thing that shapes the lives of people in our world and I want to be speaking to it in greater detail in the coming weeks as well, especially in the evening in two, three weeks, Wednesday's time. Men and women are equal and yet different. We forget that Christianity was formed by followers of Jesus who were there to cre cre 
correct wrongs and injustices in society. Gender by design comes with roles and responsibilities that, that men and women, in a sense like a team, can only fulfill the creation mandate that God gave us to fill the world with the image of God together. That it is not good for man to be alone. And men and women are 100% equal, yet are different and have different roles and responsibilities as such. Sex is God's good idea. Number five, sex is God's good idea. Let's not dismiss it as trivial as play for grown-ups. Christianity has a higher view of sex than our culture does. It's said as God's good gift to be enjoyed by a man and a woman who've been inseparably joined together. God created the orgasm. I said that when I was preaching to a group of young people in Constantiaburg a couple of years ago in the tent. And it was an evening meeting, and I literally said, God created the orgasm. And lightning struck the guardhouse and set fire to it. And we lost all power in the meeting, in the storm. Those guys, I'm telling you, they've been on the straight and narrow. But he did. He did. God's not some killjoy out there trying to, you know. Nancy Pierce, he said it like this. He said, if we are ever tempted to think that sex is corrupt or dirty, we need to remind ourselves that it was God who created it in the first place. It's beautiful. It's of God. It's a good thing. But Timothy Keller writes, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely permanently and exclusively to you. I want you to know Christians have a higher view of sex than we have in our culture. It's more than one body part going into another body part. It is a mingling of souls as two people, Jesus says, become one flesh. Love, love is much more than an emotional uh, feeling or a desire. Love is not lust. Love is a decision of the heart to delight in another person, to will their good above your own, even at a cost to yourself. Love is a decision of the heart to delight in another, to will their good above your own, even at a cost to yourself. I realized when I first fell in love with Lauren almost 20 years ago, that what I thought was love was, was more a feeling that I loved because of how she made me feel about myself. 20 years later into this marriage, my love for her is deeper and richer as much as those feelings were lovely, they weren't real love. It was actually a lot of it was self-centered around how I felt. And now I've learned to love her for who she is. Marriage. Marriage is not a contract that people opt out of when you're no longer happy. It's a covenant that you vow before God and your community to love another person. To love them again and again and again, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, come what may, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, all the days of our lives. It's a covenant. It, 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 
And to some, that sounds like you're limiting your freedom. But you're not. You're actually free because of the commitment you make. You're in a sense saying, come what may, whether it be sickness, whether it be debt, whether it, whatever happens, my future is not tied to my circumstances or how I feel. My future I've chosen is to be committed to you. you. You become free when you break free from your emotional state and when you break free from the circumstances that happen in life because you rise above the things that can happen to you and you commit yourself to something greater. Marriage is a covenant. It's intended to be a visual image of the divine human relationship. As I commit to love Lauren through the best and the worst of life, I'm in a sense mirroring Christ's commitment to love me, to love the church. It's why in Revelation 21, the, one of the primary metaphors of the church, after perhaps family, is that of a marriage where Christ unifies himself to the church. And the purpose of marriage is not just happiness. Happiness is a wonderful byproduct that happens when we align our lives as Christ followers to God in the context of marriages. But, but, but that's not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is friendship. It's part spiritual. There's no one probably in the world that's going to make me more like you. More junk comes out. Some of you guys elbowing each other. Some of you very sweetly saying, no, that's no, not true of you. All of your junk comes out in marriage, and then you know what? We love each other through it. And then more junk comes out, and then we love each other through it again. And in all of that, we depict all of the junk that's in Luke's life, and Christ loves me, and Christ loves me, and Christ loves me. It's profound. It's why, it's why divorce on the other side, well, it's anything but a clean break. It's breaking of a covenant. It's the rupture of soul ties. It's a betrayal of trust. It's pain in the lives of children. It's death in a marriage. It's the death of a marriage. And, and, and there are times when a marriage does die. I, I think due to adultery without repentance and unwillingness to change, to abandonment or abandonment through abuse. But make no mistake, it's still a death. It's still tremendous pain, and we don't give up easily. The Bible and authority, the Bible is our authority in life. It's where we come to for truth. It's where we take our coordinates from for every facet of life. We bring our lives under the scriptures as they inform us and they shape us. We don't make up our truths as we go along through life or discover them within our emotions. We come under the scriptures to be formed and shaped by them. And that's how we navigate the complexities of life and even our ever-changing selves. The body, the body is God's gift to us. It is good, it is from God, it is a gift, but it is imperfect. Your body matters, it matters immensely. We are embodied beings. Our bodies are fundamental to who we are as human beings. Your body is so much more than just a tool for you to use. It is part of your you, part of your you-ness. That's not even a word, I know, but 
That's why Jesus came in a physical body. It's why Jesus was resurrected in a physical body. And it's why Jesus is still at the right hand of God in a physical body now. And ultimately, when you get to be with Christ and He returns to earth and He puts the world to right, and He puts that, that healing I spoke of there is now fully completed in here, you and I will receive physical human bodies, resurrected and perfect. Our bodies matter it's it's why it's why terrible things when they happen to our bodies it's why rape is so much more than just an assault on molecules it's who you are it's tied to your body it's part of who you are and lastly the overall meaning of life that meaning is not found within ourselves it's not even in our own individualistic pursuits of happiness Meaning is found in connection. Meaning is found in a love for God and being loved by God. It's found in a love for others and a reciprocation as love comes back to us. In a sense, you could say the meaning of life is love, but not love in our culture's view of life. Love in the biblical sense of what it is. Two worldviews, two stories. And I'm not going into right and wrong and morality as much as I'm asking the question, what story are you living in? What, what view of the world and of yourself and of other people do you hold? And how is that informing how you live out your sexuality? We must land. You've done so well. It's longer than I ever normally preach. It's like I used to preach in the Sun Valley School. Um, but we've repented of and changed. Um, which story do you believe? When Jesus would end his teachings, he'd end by saying this. He'd say, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Now, repent is a word that we don't hear a whole lot of today anymore. It's an old word, but it's a beautiful word. To repent simply means to rethink reality. To rethink what you believe. The Greek word is metanoia. It's a change in the way you understand the way things work in life, which leads to a change in how you behave and how you live. And I put to you today, in light of these two views, to, to repent, to rethink the story that you believe and how it's working out in your life. And then to believe, to embrace a new story, a new context, which will give meaning to your sexuality in different ways. That's how the kingdom of God comes in your life, and it's how the kingdom of God comes to our world. As a group of people who believe a different story, bring their lives under Christ, and then in understanding the world and themselves differently, live in new ways, scattered in society. The kingdom of God comes. The question I'll finish with today is not do you have faith? It's what story are you putting your faith in? What story are you putting your faith in? Let's pray together. I invite Lauren to come up and lead us in song in a second. But I'd love to just lead us in some prayers. Really tried hard today to draw some clear lines. But at the same time, I, I'm so weary that of coming across as arrogant. We're, 
we're working this out. We're working this out. I, I want you to know there's not a person here who's got this right perfectly, and I'm not standing up here as the expert of the world. I'm learning this myself. I'm working this out. But what story are you living in? What story? Can we stand together? Let's do business with Jesus. So mindful, Lord, as we come before you now, that there's some for whom sex and sexuality has just been a great source of pain and perhaps even confusion in their lives. Maybe even a source of pain, Lord Jesus, where pain has come into their lives. God, I, I pray that this morning as we navigate the understanding behind this good, great gift you've given to us, yet recognizing its power, there would be grace that would come to us now. Some of it is pain through our own doing and our own understanding, and some of it is pain through others' doing. Regardless of where it comes from, Christ is able to meet us there. You see, Jesus becoming embodied is once and for all showing us that God doesn't move away from us in our brokenness, even when it's about sexuality, but He moves toward us to restore our humanity, to restore our brokenness, to give us second chances and to lead us into human flourishing. I'm so aware that perhaps for some of us today, this has been an area of struggle in your life. I want you to know that Christ moves toward you. There's nothing you could ever do to drive Him away from you that the cross cannot undo in your life. And there is resurrection life that awaits for you. In your physical body and your mind, if you would trust Him. And so Christ, we come before you. I'm aware for some maybe it's one step too far. You're interested, but you still need to know some more. That's okay as long as you keep journeying forward. But for most of us as a church, Lord Jesus, this has been a reminder to, to draw some lines and to come underneath you and to say, Christ, would you inform my sexuality? Thank you for this beautiful thing you've given me. Forgive me where I've got it wrong, Lord. And would you help me to firstly believe to my core the truths about who I really am as you articulate them in your word? And then empower me to live them out, Lord Jesus, in my life and my relationships. I'm not going to pray anymore. We're going to sing, but sing along in the words or just take some time as we do so to pray. You do business with Jesus. You give words to Him that are, are the right words that you want to pray to Him, knowing that in our sexuality, if this series tells us anything, it's God comes toward us to help us to flourish, not turns his back on us as we've struggled he comes to help he comes to help let's worship together